This is the Power of Genetics podcast. In each episode, I'll be interviewing successful practitioners and impactful thought leaders in the world of health and performance. They will share their journey, their insights, and their best advice for us all. I'm your host, Dr. Yael Jaffe. Let's begin with today's episode. Welcome to the Power of Genetics podcast. My very special guest today is Dr. Zahara Sweden, who I was introduced to, I think it was a year ago or almost, and I think I'm still recovering from my first meeting with Zahara because I was so overwhelmed and intimidated and inspired by everything I heard about you. So a very big welcome to you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So everyone's in for a bit of a treat today because um, you are one of the most multi-dimensional, successful um, medical, academic entrepreneurs that I've come across. There you go. So I'm setting you up there. <laughs> so I would love you to just share, maybe just, um, I always say like, if you can just give like the, the elevator pitch of where you are now, like you do this now, the quick version, because we're going to get back there. And then we're going to go back to the beginning. And the beginning is kind of the why, you know, why you started out. And, and we're going to just track your journey until we get back to where we are now. Where, where I'm at, I think, is, uh, Yale, as you mentioned, I'm multidimensional. I always love to do a million and one thing. So currently, um, I am, uh, you know, very heavy in academic, and I always have been. So I teach at three, um, you know, universities across the country. I'm also the director of professional programming and development for the American Academy of Anti-Aging and Regenerative Medicine, where I have been faculty really with the A4M for the past 27 years. I'm totally aging myself now. Um, but more recently in the past three years, along with Dr. Heyman, we've become kind of the co-coordinators and co-directors for professional development and programming of the fellowship programs uh, that they have. Um, also on my entrepreneurial end, I, I had a, a specialty in compounding pharmacy actually for 23 years that I just recently sold roughly about six months ago. Congratulations. And, um, and thank you. And I'm, um, you know, I've always done, you know, my entrepreneurial and consulting on the side with my uh, neurofarm company. Um, and for funding kicks and giggles, as I call it, I also have a skincare line. Yes, you do. Uh, Sahar yes. skincare that I kind of developed really more. Um, that was my creative outlet, if you will, that I also run that business on the side. And that's more, you know, my fun slash creative um, entrepreneurial side too. Okay. So um, I think that's a great, I think that's great. I think everyone's already going, oh, you do all that. Okay. Now let's go back to the beginning. Tell us how it is that you started out and like, you know, we always say like no one wakes up in the morning and it's suddenly you, you know, you started somewhere. Where did it begin for you? Yeah, it really, it probably started when I was very, very young. I mean, I think since I was three ITs, I always wanted to be in the medical field. I always wanted to help people ever since I was very young. I always wanted to make the world a better place, as I call it, be a bright light in the world and just really help humanity. So um, and on our family, it's really funny. I always tease. We only go to the two M schools. We either go to money school or medicine school. You know, that's that. Like that's, um, our family is very segregated, entrepreneurial money school or, you know, the medicine medical people. Um, 
so you know it just seemed like that's what I exposed to all my life and then I thought wow how cool would it be to marry both right you know why can't you marry the two M schools if you will and because I was always very interested in um, you know, business, fun, entrepreneurial, but I love the humanity side and in, in helping humanity. So that's, I would say, where it started for me. I was, you know, through school, I took, you know, obviously more science-based type curriculum. Um, I started college early, early. We won't talk about that. I was 14 and a half when I started college. <laughs> Let's and, not uh, talk about that because <laughs> I just started college at 14 and a half because I was, yeah, okay. So I finished, uh, so I finished, you know, school fairly young. So um, interesting story. So I started in the biochemistry department because I was, you know, biochem, obviously major for medical, you know, medicine school. And I was going basically to medical school. Um, and then I met a colleague of mine, you know, Brian and uh, uh, Brian Samuels and his wife was in the pharmacy school. And he goes, why do you want to go to medical school? I think the pharmacy school is a much better, you know, um, maybe school for women, you can have, you know, work life balance, you know, family, all that stuff back in the days, you know, and he goes, you know, sometimes also you have, there were so many career opportunities in pharmacy and maybe in medicine, you might be more cornered because he goes, you know, you get bored. He knew me really well. He goes, you get bored so easily. You always have to have innovation in newness. So he goes, why don't you talk to my wife? You know, and the next thing I know, I was ripping the acceptance letter to medical school. And, and then I went to meet with the, um, uh, with the uh, admitting dean, you know, dean of admissions at the College of Pharmacy. And I tease to this day, I say, I think she drugged me or got me drunk because I, I kind of basically signed on the dotted line that day. And I applied and I was accepted into pharmacy school. So it's really interesting how life takes you on these interesting journeys and in, in your whatever your destiny I guess what you're meant to do so like I said kind of diverted from med school went to pharmacy school um, and went to the University of Michigan College of Pharmacy which is always rated in the top literally one to two you know pharmacy schools in the country so I was very lucky and privileged to be admitted in that amazing school um, I went to school there and then at the end back then you know clinical pharmacists were not as adopted yet or they didn't know really what pharmacists can bring to the table you know besides you know they thought pharmacists can only pour count lick and stick as I tease <laughs> and, yeah and a lot more you know clinical all that stuff and then um anyway so you know when I was going through rounds I'm like oh forget this I'm going back to medical school why is everyone asking me what are you doing here um so anyways but then I loved academia and teaching so, you know part of graduation is we have to do a research project. We have to write a paper, you know, kind of like a PhD mini thesis, as I called it. Um, and I was like, oh my God, I fell in love with research and teaching in academia. And I can gab like no one ever since I was three years old. So I always had the gift of gabbing and teaching, I guess. So then I was like, oh my God, I love this. So maybe let me do a postdoc fellowship, if you will, you know, instead and see. So that's what I did. I stayed on at the university and I did a three-year um, fellowship in biopharmaceutics and gastroenterology, where I got to run major clinical trials that were running with my uh, preceptor, you know, Jenny Dressman and Rosemary Berardi, who were two key inspirational women for me, amazing uh, researchers, academics, you know, and boy, they were slave drivers, as I call them, you know, I would be working from like four in the morning until midnight every day, um, and I tease, of course, I was so exhausted then, but now it's like, wow, you know, just, you're kind of doing it now. So, yeah. You know, exactly. Cause I was like, 
wow. I mean, they just, they really made me flourish as a, as a researcher, as an academic, as a teacher, you know, and back then, of course, you're so exhausted. You're like, why are you so hard on me? Um, so anyways, I finished that. Can I, can um, I just stop you there for a second? Yes. I just want to ask you a question. You know, when I met you, um, and even after meeting you a few times, um, I was very surprised that you chose pharmacy school because I think anyone who knows you would not think that pharmacy school was the right fit for you. Um, and in the same way that it probably wouldn't have been for me, was there any time during your studies at pharmacy school that you kind of thought to yourself, this is because it's this isn't the best fit or I might not have chosen the right area or maybe I should have done medicine or something else. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like I said, the last year of my school, I was like, forget this. I'm going to medical school because I'm like, I don't want to have to say, well, you know, why are you here on rotations, you know, when you were at the hospital? But then, like I said, I fell in love with academia. And even when I finished my fellowship, honestly, I was still kind of um, some hesitancy, like, oh, is this really my calling, if you will? Or should I go to medical school again? Because we have a lot of doctors in the family, you know, and then it was like, oh, Sahar, you know, you're so good at humanities. They always tease me and they called me Mother Teresa ever since I was a child because I always want to take care of the world, you know, like go to medical school, just finish it. This is great training, but, you know, so I think you always, you, you, you know, I think even now I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> I'm still like, I keep going to school and getting degrees. I love, love learning. I literally could just go to school all my life. Even to now, I was like, oh, you know, uh, one of my kids, he wants to be a neurosurgeon. I'm like, oh my God, that'll be so cool. I think I'll go to med school with him. Just for, with you. You know, for I'll come kicks. with you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for kicks and giggles, if you will. Cause so anyways, you know, it was interesting. So like I finished that and then um, you know, I met these two rock star preceptors of mine that really shaped me. And I was like, wow, you know, they were amazing. So, you know, awarded, you know, high in their fields or whatever. Then I started doing that. And then during my fellowship, I was moonlighting at the hospital uh, during my fellowship at hospital. And again, if you told me in a million years, do you want to work in a hospital or clinical pharmacy? I would be like, no, because every time I went on rotation, I was asked, what are you doing here? You know? So it was interesting, like how life takes you on these journeys. So anyways, I was doing moonlighting at the hospital and then they had a clinical coordinator position become available and they go, Sahar, do you want to apply for it? And I'm like, no, why would I do that? And they're like, oh my God, you would be so good at it because you know, you're so good clinically and, you know, and uh, blah, blah, you know, so I did that and I actually, and I started rounding with the inpatient head pain and management team. And then it was with Dr. Saper, who was, it was one of the literally world-renowned inpatient head pain and migraine clinics in the world. We get patients from all over the world. So I kind of went up to him. I was never the shy type. And I'm like, wow, you do, your stuff is really interesting. And you do everything against what I learned in pharmacy school. And I love that. I always loved renegades in their field, right? Because I was always a disruptor, as I call it, in a good way. So I called him and I started rounding with them and oh my God, within six months, they really loved, you know, my credit, clinical credibility, whatever you want to call it. And I literally had, I probably was one of the first pharmacists in the state or in the country to have collaborative practice agreement where basically I had keys to the kingdom and, you know, I was ordering tests with them, lab tests, changing medication orders, obviously with physician supervision and stuff. So that was a really first in the industry and, you know, and did that. Also, at the same time, 
the director position became available and they told me, um, well, Sahar, do you want to be acting director? And my, mind you, I finished school early. So here's a 21 year old punk. <laughs> what do I know about directing? And I was like, um, they go, you know, do you want to be acting director? And I was like, well, I guess I can act for a couple months, really. Like, what do I know about directing? So it was interesting because I, you know, I took the position, but I didn't want to give up clinical practice because I was really loving it. And I was so fresh off the boat. You know, I wanted to keep building my clinical repertoire per se. And then I was doing both jobs. So I was working like a hundred hours a week, you know, and being the director of an inpatient in the outpatient pharmacies and, you know, this clinical role. And two months later, they were like, I took them from like negative to a lot of black, you know, because of my entrepreneurial training with the family. Thank you, family. Right. Um, and then they're like, oh my God, can you apply for the real position? And I was like, ooh, you know, administration, if you ask me, like, would you ever want to be a hospital administrator? Like, you know, with something like new. But, you know, I did apply and I was accepted. But again, I didn't want to give up my position. So I did that for like 17 years, literally at the oh hospital, gosh. did both positions. But the cool part is I always loved academia. So I was teaching at the universities and I like I still do now. Um, but it really it was really nice to kind of um, implement a lot because in academia you're always staying at the latest and greatest research you know I'm exposed you know University of Michigan it's one of the top universities in the world right so we always had these brainiacs doing the most cutting edge innovative you know treatments research publications so I got to work with these amazing brainiacs you know at the university and worldwide um, and when I was doing my fellowship kind of trekking back my preceptor fell in love with a French man and she was like, here I am, a 20-year-old punk, just out of school. Um, we had $20 million worth of grants. And she goes, I'm leaving. And I'm like, what do you mean you're leaving? You know, here's a 20-year-old punk, like, with $20 million worth of clinical trials that are going on. I'm like, that's a little intimidating. So she did that. But the best part of this was I got to go to Europe a lot and work on some of these projects with her there and do some of the statistical analysis and updates and things like that, which is really what ignited my love for integrative and holistic medicine. So when I would go to Europe, I was well, that, that was wife. my next question, of course, how did you transition into yeah. the world of integrative and functional? Because yeah, that's quite, a, that's quite a, a, a chasm there between. Yeah, exactly. Very traditional allopathic medicine. Allopathic, you know, administrative yeah. hospital. And then so, exactly, you know, and, and that's what I'm saying. Like life takes you on these weird journeys right so yeah I went to Europe and I was always like wow they do pharmacy different here because you know the pharmacists can prescribe there they do a lot of treatments you know then I would go to the hospitals I'm like show me your hospitals how are they different the doctors I met tell me about the system here how is it how do you and they were so much more multidisciplinary and then I traveled a lot to Asia and literally learned like eastern and western medicine and the dichotomies there right very different and that's when I learned about, you know, chakras and energy medicine. And I was like, wow, why don't we, because really the best, you know, the best treatment outcomes happen when we marry East and West medicine, as I call it, really. And you come to the middle. And, and that's always been my passion and goal is to really marry hardcore academia, if you will, allopathic with 
what my colleagues will call woo-woo medicine, you know, and really bring, but a lot of this woo-woo medicine is very well documented in the literature. And, and because I'm academic, I always brought the best of both worlds and kind of practice. So when I went to Europe, I was like, wow, this is amazing. How can I bring this into my life and practice and teach? So I started to research for, you know, organizations that would do this kind of stuff. And then also I met a colleague of mine, Dr. Pam Smith, who you probably know, you know, in the A4M lectures a lot. Um, you know, she really was the grandma, as I call her, of the fellowship program with A4M. And she's from Michigan, too. And she heard me speak at a medical meeting once. And she came up to me. She's like, oh, my God, where did you learn to speak on these other integrative topics of treatment? And I said, Europe and so on. She goes, oh, my God, I'm starting this fellowship and you're a great speaker. Would you like to lecture with me and start training? And I said, oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, 27 years later with the A4M, that's really how I found wow. the A4M, if you will, and been with them literally from day one of life with Dr. Smith and other colleagues that kind of were the early faculty, if you will, with the A4M and teaching. I mean, it's so, it's uh, 27 years. A4M has grown um, a rather lot. Oh, it's exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's one of the you know, really, it's the major, like with IFM, major educators of really this type of medicine worldwide, right? So, so very lucky and privileged, again, to be an amazing company like Dr. Smith and Dr. Heyman, Dr. Houston, Dr. Laval, and the many other amazing faculty that we have of A4M. So that's kind of when I really started my journey. And I always was, you know, hardcore academia and brought integrative functional you know longevity medicine from day one into my clinical practice if you will because a lot of times like I would order probiotics on people you know 27 years ago you know and everybody's like what is this you know and they want to take you to jail and all the good <laughs> stuff you know and and um you know some of the um you know nutrient you know drug-induced nutrient depletion uh pharmacogenomics you know come into genomics you know I mean I've been doing pharmacogenomics, God, probably 25 years ago, you know, back in the day when Roche had, you know, the really expensive assay, you know, because sometimes with these really complicated patients, especially the ones we get in our head pain unit, they were extremely complicated. They've kind of failed multiple treatments around the globe, if you will. And so sometimes um, they were on multiple medication. I mean, the, the one patient, I will never forget her, she was on 54 daily medications. Oh my gosh. So, oh, um, that's awful. I'm like, oh my God, I need to know the destiny, right? What did God give her and what genes <laughs> did come with her so we can see what's smarter, what works, what doesn't work. And, and that's also what really ignited my love and passion for genetics, which I've been, you know, involved in that teaching and, and practicing, you know, really for the past 25 years, because we would get these really complicated patients a lot of neuropsychiatric type illnesses and or sensitivities to drugs. And as you know, neuropsychiatric drugs specifically, just like oncology, they are just drug-drug interaction ridden, right? They write the books yeah. for drug-drug interaction. So, so in, our, in my field, you know, I would give these patients that are on 30, 50 meds a day. And, um, and it was my job to, you know, keep them safe, figure out the best options for them. Um, what really works with the God-created genomic profile, if you will. Have you seen, uh, how have you seen, I mean, the interesting thing is pharmacogenomics was kind of the predecessor of nutrigenomics. You know, pharmacogenomics yes. was kind of the model on which 
nutrigenomics yeah. was based. I mean, nutrigenomics was way more complicated because, you know, in pharmaco, you have like an active ingredient and you can kind of track it more easily. Yeah. Nutrition is so complex, but, you know, I've been in 20, 20 plus years, 23 years now in nutrigenomics. And when I started, you know, pharmaco was already kind of up and running. And one of my, um, I always used to ask the question, you know, if pharmaco is like, pharmacogenomics is so obvious, like it's so beneficial to the patient. And even 25 years ago, I couldn't understand why it wasn't being implemented and used. And of course I asked this question repeatedly because nutrigenomics is complicated and there's multiple nutrients and micronutrients and phytonutrients, but pharmaco was like a, it's a no brainer, right? It was like, this is so beneficial. Yeah. And I always ask, ask the question, you know, why aren't we seeing, and even today so i have to say i still feel like pharmacogenomics is not being adopted in mainstream medicine and we are like decades and decades into it and of course my theory was that big pharma was keeping keeping it from the door because it kind of says that 50 percent of drugs don't work in the way that we think that they do what is your what do you think why pharmaco which is such a solid science hasn't been adopted more yeah i mean honestly that's always like to me you know, I served on many local, state, and national committees and things like that. And my opinion is we should not dispense one pill in this country to any human without knowing their pharmacogenomic profile. Because again, is it the all it be it? Absolutely not. But, but is it, it is a guide? It's another, yeah, yeah, it's a guide. It's a, it's, it's a tool that we can use to just be smarter clinicians about, you know, what may work for that patient rather than kind of doing you know, the ring around the rosy with drugs. Yeah, the trial and error, trial and error. You know, trial and error to see, you know. But you haven't haven't answered the question of why you think, you believe it, but why do you think it hasn't been adopted? So I think, I think multiple reasons. One, we always know it's really frustrating because even stuff that I used to teach 25, seven years ago, which back then I was called in the principal's office all the time, I used to say, because what are you doing? Um, finally is making it in mainstream medicine and in major journals that everybody's familiar with, right? Before they would be in these maybe less elaborate, less known journals, whatever you want to call it. So part of it, I think the adoption cycle is from just, you know, bench to to bedside is, is on average 20 to 25 years, which is really sad to say. Part of it is changing the payment profile of the insurance company. So like even for a while, Medicare started paying for pharmacogenomics and really people were kind of upticking, adopting it and using it more because of people like me and many others that are teaching that. And then they took it away. And I was like, how does that make any sense in the most prone population that it's on polypharmacy, right? Then we have like the Bears criteria and all these things and drug warnings about these elderly. And I'm like, why would you take a tool that can make us so much smarter, probably decrease the rate of adverse reactions, decrease hospital admissions? As safe? Absolutely. percent of hospital admissions are due to a drug misadventures, as we know, Absolutely. right? So I mean, this, like, that's, that's also so clear. Like, it's not yeah. a debate. And yet, yeah, it, it was so taken. part of it, you know, I think is the education part. You know, if you don't keep up and work to educate yourself, a lot of the educa- continuing education that honestly a lot of providers get is from medical meetings or their drug reps, right? Yeah. So if yeah. you don't keep up with the training, 
the innovation, you know, the pharmacogenomic and learn how to use it, how to treat it. If the insurance is not paying for it, unfortunately, you know, people will pay $50 a day for three packs of cigarettes, but they won't pay $5 for a vitamin D bottle or maybe a two to $300 pharmacogenomic test out of pocket. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they're paying a thousand plus for cigarettes. So sometimes it's the mentality also. If insurance is not paying for it, that means it's not good, yeah. right? It doesn't tell me anything. So when you have clinicians maybe that have not taken the time to learn and understand the powerful tool that yeah. it can provide, no pay, you know, somebody's not paying for it and somebody's not drumming that drum to the patient, why it's important. You yeah, know, this is well, what I guess I it's the same challenges nutrigenomics okay exactly. so yeah. i mean we could talk about just this topic for a long time but i don't want to get i want to talk yeah. about you as an entrepreneur because remember i you know we've got people listening to this podcast who are sitting and going you know how extraordinary i mean you're clearly academic you're a, you're an educator teacher you're a student yourself continuously um you you seem to be able to break down barriers of learning of just as like being like a sponge, you know, with the East West, um, allopathic, um, integrative widths. So, so, I mean, I love the story about the family and entrepreneurship because I had a similar experience. I was the only academic in my family, literally the only one, but my father was an extraordinary entrepreneur. And I lived in a house where, you know, he was like launching a new business. Like every three months we had a new business and they were, one was going insolvent, but we were making another one. And this one was bankrupt and started a new one. And that was our life. And I actually wanted no part of it and kind of fled off to academia. And here I am many, you know, a couple of decades later, deeply immersed in as an entrepreneur. What do you think it is about you? I mean, is it, is it just your family environment? Do you think there's something about your personality that drove you to want to build companies? Yeah, I think, I think honestly, mostly definitely family influence, but I think it's mostly my personality. Um, I'm an epinephrine junkie. Is I call Yes, you know? as we found in that, we found that out in your genetics, right? <laughs> yeah. your, when we did your genetics for genetic yeah, exactly. report, we were like, I was like, so how your genetics? Oh my gosh, you're running on speed, you know? And right, exactly. So so God pre-programmed me and we'll just blame it on him or her, uh, whatever that is. But um, yeah, I think part of it is my personality. I, I love the newness. I love innovation. I love, um, I get bored easily. I always have to create my own excitement as I call it. Like usually when I finish one project, I'll pick up 10 because I'm, I'm so worried about having five minutes to breathe, you know, as I call it, like I just panic, like, oh my God, I have five minutes, like three, what should I do? Let's pick up 10 projects. Um, so I think the entrepreneurial, because it's always like the newness, exciting. You always have to be on your toes. You always have to be learning. You always have to be doing like market analysis, competitive edge, um, and just innovate. Like, you know, I'm always just, you know, I've always been a disruptor in a good way, hopefully, as I call it. You know, I always kind of wanted to be you know, the person that's banging the doors. And I get a lot of people like say, oh my God, I want to do this, but there's nobody that's done this before. And I'm like, so what? Yeah, that's like Harder the best. That's <laughs> we like love the that. best, exactly. I mean, there was no migraine pharmacist in the country either, but I made it. And, you know, I published over 40 publications, four books later, you know, like, so what? Just, just charter your own territory. So I think a lot of it is honestly more personality in my just drive to always innovate, always, you know, find excitement and, and I guess stay on my, you know, 
So, so let's, I mean, we don't, you know, we, we try and we try and not make it too long, but I just, you know, if, what would be the advice because you have this diversity of experience, expertise, and, and amazing success, you know, what would be the advice that you would give to someone who is either in academia or is in practice or is studying to be a, a medical professional in terms of the entrepreneur journey? Because I think everyone looks at it and thinks it's something beyond them or something that they can never achieve. Like what would be your advice to them um, when they're sitting in there and looking and going like, wow, that's amazing that you, you know, built all these companies. Yeah, I mean, I think, and honestly, we were just on a, like an academic panel to students and, you know, what is the drawback of a lot of the medical education we all, we all receive? And, and so we all come out like beautiful training in, in the medical and academia world, if you will, but nobody teaches you business. And really, when you think about it, every person is the CEO of themselves or a medical practice, a pharmacy, a genetic company, a PhD lab. It really, in a way, every single person runs their own company. And it's really sad that we do no business or entrepreneurial training in any of our medical type you know, schooling. So to me, I think whether you like it or not, you are the CEO of something. You have to work just like you work on developing yourself academically, medically, if you will, by going to continue in education classes. I think self-development classes and business development classes are right up there with academic training to me. Um, so I've always you know, like I said, you know, I'm always trying to be a better version of myself and how can I help humanity better, if you will, uh, whether it's through teachings or, you know, philanthropy or just, you know, teaching clinicians or helping them guide them medically or entrepreneurially. I think it's very important to go to business classes and courses and, um, you know, and, and just jump in. I mean, like, I think part of it is I'm not, a, I'm not scared to fail because like, that's the only way you learn also. To me, that's the best learning tool. You know, you, you do calculated risks, I call it, you know? So, you know, a lot of times we can kind of just analyze and in, in, in me, I was very guilty of that for a very long time because A, all health professionals are OCD by trade. And um, you can really get into analysis paralysis as I call it, right? So like at one point you gotta, you know, calculate your risks, pros and cons, and then just jump, jump in. Just you're going to learn around the way you're going to screw up, but that's, those are all learning opportunities. I mean, I screwed up a million and one things, you know, um, I have my family, you know, many times I'll call and go, yeah, uh, what is this? How should I do this? Duh, this is like dumb. Like, you know, how do I finagle this stupid system where you got to go through 15 red tapes and, you know, so in, in use mentors, you, you know, use your system, your tribe, your, whatever, you know, reach out to any of us, you know, we're all happy to help each other. But I think the best thing is like, learn as much as you can, plan, calculate some risk and just jump in and screw jump up in. and have fun. Yeah, yeah. Have it's fun. my always my advice, just jump in, like this, jump in, yeah, just like jump in and get started. You'll figure it out as you go along. I totally agree. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna finish off with one last question. This is the power of genetics podcast. So it seems appropriate. And you and I have spoken about genetics quite a bit, and we touched on Pharmaco earlier. 
How do you think genetics is going to impact the world of nutrition, medicine, health, healthcare in the future? Yeah, so, you know, we know definitely it's so important. You know, I always say we have genetics and epigenetics, right? I think it's important to know your blueprint. So genetics give you your blueprint. You know, polygenomic scores is the next level up, right? So we have genomics and God's blueprint, as I call it, right? Then you have polygenomic scores. So now we're smarter. Now we can crisscross all these genes and better understand the interplay between the blueprints, right? And then we have epigenetics, nutrigenomics, right? You know, to some degree, you know, what turns on and turns off those genes? We're definitely getting smarter. We know genetics is not the full destiny. And I think that's what scares a lot of people. Honestly, if you ask me, what are some of the stop gaps? I'm working with a patient right now and she has horrible family history and this and that. And I said, you know, we can modify that destiny. I said, it's really good and important to know your blueprint and then to see what are your risk factors so we can give you a better epigenetics blueprint to not yeah. turn on or turn off yeah. these genes. So, so you know, to this day, I think we're getting closer and closer, like now in cancer treatments, right? You know, genomics are making much better splash. Like we're identifying these tumors. We're getting the genome of the tumor treatment-wise, pharmacogenomics in cancer and you know, neuropsychiatric, you know, drugs is, is definitely gaining momentum. I think in nutrigenomics, you know, um, polygenomic scoring, you know, now also with the longevity medicine, right? Everybody wants to know. And I think part of it, this is the time that's really ripe for genomics. I think for full adaptation of it is also, it, it has become so cost You know, before it was in companies and plans, um, you know, we're now, you know, we can sequence the entire genome of somebody for, you know, $1,100, right? You know, back then it was a million or more. Oh. Then it was in the hundreds of thousand. And then it was a 10 of thousand. Now it's a thousand buck, right? You know, I can sequence my whole genome and, and for a couple hundred dollars, you know, you can get, let's say pharmacogenomics, nutrigenomics. So, so I always, you know, in my teachings, I've been teaching this for 25 years and you know, back then they're like genomic, what, you know, and now it's yeah. not like first, first day of French, you know, when I used yeah. to like, what's a SNP, what's a variant, what's a copy number, you know what I mean? Like before it was totally foreign language. Right. And now, you know, I don't see the glazed eyes. As yeah. Much. It's <laughs> definitely finding it's finding its way into our conversation. Yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So now, so I always to patients, to clinicians, I'm like, it's very important to know the blueprint of your patient their polygenomic scoring and how they interplay. And that's the blueprint. Yes, and then that's your job is to help them. How do I modify these risk factors really, right? That I was born with so that you can stay on the best path forward, you know? Well, Zahara, I couldn't have said it any better. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Um, as always, I'm just amazed at how much you have achieved. Um, I, I mean, I do think part of it is if you started 14, it does help, you know, uh, not like me who was kind of just took a very long time to get going. I am very excited to see, you know, continue to watch the work you do, continue to watch your impact in the space. I really look forward to meeting you in person one day. Hopefully, Absolutely. For sure. Yeah, we got to make it happen this year. But 
you know, I just wanted to thank you. I really think it's it's a true inspiration for, for all of us just to keep pushing, jump in, be brave, you know, and just keep moving forward. And so I always charter new territory. Absolutely. You know, you always, you are the CEO of you, as I always say, just I charter territory. But thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Yael. And uh, if there's anything I can help you or your listeners, please reach out. Thank you for listening to the Power of Genetics podcast brought to you by 3x4 Genetics. For more episodes, please visit 3x4genetics.com backslash podcasts.